0: We want to begin by really asking a couple of questions that I hope that we're going to answer in the text today. And the first one is what does it take to follow Jesus Christ? What does it mean to follow him? And what will it cost you? There are questions that have been asked for centuries. And truthfully, they've become more relevant even now in the most recent years, considering our cultural climate. Because I believe it always costs you something to follow Christ in any age, but it just seems as though the stakes keep on rising. I believe that one of the results of the events of the past year has been to reveal the true colors of popular Christianity. Because it's very easy to say, I love Jesus. That's very easy to say. It's easy to say, I believe in Jesus or I'm a follower of Jesus. And yet still not be truly committed to all that that means. But this is not a new issue. This is not something just for our day. Jesus himself dealt with various kinds of people who claimed to want to follow him, but yet did not count the cost. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So turn with your in your Bible to Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8. We're continuing to work through the gospel of Matthew. Uh, I'm just, I'm uh, impressed and amazed and I don't want to say surprised, but just astonished at how, how, re- how relevant and how pressing and how timely uh, these texts are week to week as we move through them. As many of you know, I don't plan out, okay, I'm going to hit this thing for this day and this event for this day. We just work our way through the text and God in his sovereignty and his providence applies these truths to us as we go. And again, I'm always astonished at just how timely these really are. But again, the first half of Matthew chronicles the events of three different healings, which we believe occurred on the same day. They took place on a Sabbath. In each occurrence, the Lord Jesus displays his power for the purpose of authenticating both his message as well as his identity as the Sovereign Lord. And he is acknowledged to be or recognized to be the healer in these texts. He is acknowledged to be the Savior. He is the Redeemer. And it's revealed slowly as he progresses in his ministry. And upon seeing all these amazing things, and there's going to be more healings At the end of chapter 8 and into chapter 9, I mean, this whole section of Scripture just showcases and chronicles His healing ministry. All these things take place, and as they're going on and these things are taking place, the crowds are seeing the the miraculous work of Christ, and they're being drawn more and more to Him as He does these things. And so we're going to pick this account up in verse 18. So Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 we see Jesus preparing to escape from the massive crowd, that is, until he is stopped by a few individuals before he can get on the ship. Matthew 8:18. 8, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, "Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go." Jesus said to him, "The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests." But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. This is a remarkable passage, as we'll see. And admittedly, however, it is head scratching. And so I want to work our way through this and try to understand what is inherent in this passage and where this applies to us. Once again, Jesus is coming off a very busy day of teaching and healing. And like he does many other times, he gets tired from a long day, because remember, he is the God-man, he is uh, fully and truly deity, he is God, but he also uh, resides in a human flesh, and so this is what it's called in theological terms, the hypostatic union, that there are two natures in one, that he is God and man in one person here, but In terms of touching his humanity, Jesus experienced every other thing that we experience, except from sinfulness, of course, but he experienced fatigue and tiredness. He would work hard and get drained and then have to go home and take a nap. I mean, that was a common occurrence, and that's what he experiences here. He's tired, and he would oftentimes retreat with the disciples and go and rest and pray and and get rejuvenated, then he would come back and do more ministry. That's a regular occurrence. And in fact, if we look ahead to verse 24, Jesus actually falls asleep in the back of a fishing boat due to his exhaustion from a very busy day. But here in verse 18, we see the events leading up to that retreat. And then 18 picks us up here when Jesus saw a crowd around him. And so he's healing. He's doing ministry. The crowds are pressing in. And finally, he gets to the place where he realizes there's this massive crowd. He's just not going to be able to, to deal with, with the strength he has left. And so he goes and he gives orders here to depart to the other side of the sea. This crowd is following. The Greek word is oklos. It means multitude. It means multitude. A lot of people are surrounding him. We don't know how many people are surrounding him. It could have been uh, certainly certainly more than dozens if he's uh, being chased onto a boat here, but hundreds, possibly even thousands of people surrounding him as he's healing all these different people and he's teaching the multitudes. And if you have to just imagine him teaching and doing these things, uh, they're all talking to him. Ever had 50 or 100 people talk to you all at one time? Talking to him, they're touching him. They're asking him to do things for them. They're, they're grabbing his clothes. And this is a regular occurrence for Jesus. And so at a certain point, he realizes that he needs to get away from the crowd. It's time to go. And so he tells the disciples to prepare the boat and they're going to get ready to cross over the sea to the other side. Now, as a reminder of where they are, they're in the city of Capernaum, which is on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And so for them to cross over this sea to the other side, when we look at the geography, it's about eight miles to cross this small sea. It would have taken them a couple hours, depending on the obstacles. Um, but we know from verse 28 that they eventually cross over the sea, you know, over the course of the night, and they end up in the region of, uh, of Gadara. At this point, they're only getting ready to cross, and so we're not quite there yet. But it's at this point that he's ready to cross over to the other side when Jesus is approached in verse 19. Look at verse 19. A scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now Matthew records that a scribe has come to Jesus. What is a scribe? That's the question for us today. It's not a stenographer. It's not a transcriptionist. It's quite more than that. Certainly, they were uh, acclimatized to to writing. They were, you know, doing so. Uh, The word scribe in the Greek, it's grammateus. This is a highly educated scholar of Jewish theology and law. These were very smart, intellectual, brilliant people. They were the theologians of Israel, while the groups like the Saracens and the Sadducees, they were more of the religious politicians, if you will. I mean, they did some... You know, in terms of teaching and leading and making decisions. But really, they were just really a political group sort of advancing Judaism. With the scribes, they were behind the scenes. They were studying the Bible. They were, they were examining the texts and the context. They were examining the traditions and the rituals. I mean, they were, they were in the guts of the whole religion. They were very devout. They were fiercely loyal to Jewish tradition. And they were very meticulous to study and to know the Bible. They themselves were the teachers and authorities in Israel. Eventually, they, or I should say, essentially, they were a cross between a seminary professor and a constitutional lawyer. It's one of those jobs that are highly respected. They were highly educated. And it's one of these respected, educated scribes that comes to Jesus. Jesus. Now, in the some of the English translations of this text, it depends on what Bible you have, some of the English translations include this modifier that he was a certain teacher. Uh, the, the 95 edition of the New American Standard doesn't re- record certain, it just says a teacher. Uh, some of your Bibles might say a certain teacher. This may have indicated that he was someone particular, someone of importance, who, who might have been well-known, Uh, Matthew doesn't record this. He doesn't record his name or his specific position. Nonetheless, even if we don't know if he was a well-known teacher, to have a scribe, a theologian, interested in your ministry was no small thing. And what does the scribe say to Jesus? He says to him very politely, Teacher, Rabbi, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, at first glance, this seems like really good news. It's early on in the ministry. And in every other instance, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were all critical and antagonistic of Jesus. He didn't have lots of scribal friends. The Pharisees didn't like Jesus very much at all. And why wouldn't they be antagonistic? He opposed every rigid legalistic practice they created. They had taken Judaism as it is displayed in the scriptures. They had taken all of that and added on to it, and embellished it, and enhanced it, and created such a system that it was crippling the people of Israel. They created a system that went beyond the Bible. It went so far beyond the Bible, it began to contradict the Bible. Much the same way that Roman Catholicism does as well. Again, same Bible language, but has gone so far beyond the scriptures that it actually works in contradiction. Same thing with Judaism here. And they were holding people... In captive under the weight of these man-made laws and practices. And Jesus opposed all of it. All of it. Any man-made system that, that was set up against the law of God, Jesus opposed it. Now, he claimed that it was not really an outward showing that made you right with God. That was not the point of a relationship with God. That's not the gospel, that we just do outward things. Rather, it has to do with your faith and your love for God. That is the thing that he's pleased with. Christianity is a religion of the heart. That's what Jesus preached. And for that message, the scribes and Pharisees, they opposed Jesus. But this scribe in particular was interested in becoming not just a listener. He wanted to be a follower of Jesus. Now, this is also strange because generally speaking, rabbis uh, would have people following them. Normally, didn't have the rabbis go and find another rabbi. So to have a teacher of the law go and follow this rabbi who really wasn't regarded in their circles. As far as we can tell, Jesus did not go and submit himself to the same rigor of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But yet he was still, that he understood the law better than any of them did. And so they, were, they just marveled at his seemingly natural inherent wisdom. And so this, this scribe, this teacher, this theologian comes to Jesus and he says, I will follow you wherever you go, whatever you do, I I want to listen to what you're saying. I want to do what you're doing. Now, to the onlookers of the crowd, this seems kind of like a no-brainer. Having a scribe as a follower, that would certainly have lent some credibility to the movement. In the face of opposition, it would have been great to say, well, listen, if you don't like what I'm saying, this well-known scribe, he seems to think I know what I'm talking about. Wouldn't that have been a boon to Jesus' ministry? Certainly much better, more credibility than the group of fishermen that were following him. It It would seem that you would be welcoming a scribe. That would be a good thing to have this theologian backing you, but Jesus knows better. Look at verse 20. This is remarkable. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, at first glance, this seems like an odd response. Why would you say this to this scribe, this theologian? Well, obviously, Jesus knows something we don't. But let's start with his answer. He says foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. That's pretty self-evident, I would think. While these aren't elaborate dwellings, we understand that even the most simple animals have homes, even dwelling places. And the point is very clear. It's a basic necessity for all creatures, all of the creation. And even as enculturated people, we ourselves, we have homes. Whether we rent a home, we purchase a home, we have somewhere to live. We own some amount of personal property. All of us have something to our name. However, people who don't have anything, people who are homeless are not usually living in the lap of luxury. And generally speaking, nobody spends their time dreaming of possessing nothing. Now that's a gross generalization because there's whole movements of people who sell everything and try to go find a place on a desert island and live sort of as as a monastic or whatever like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the general ambition of most people. Nobody aspires to have nothing in this world, certainly in this country. So despite the fact that even foxes and birds have homes and dwelling places Jesus says but the son of man has nowhere to let to lay his head I want to unpack this a little bit He refers here to the son of man the son of man I've talked about this title before I want to go back to it again this title is used dozens of times in the Gospels, it was really Jesus' favorite self-designation. He uses the Son of Man title as a name for himself. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. We know that to be true. Now, you would think that the Son of God would be a better title, a more fitting choice for a title to give himself. I am the Son of God. But he, he uses the Son of Man. And believe it or not, Son of Man is more dynamic. Why? Well, some scholars hold to the position that the Son of Man, the title Son of Man, is really a title of humility and of lowliness. And so that's why Jesus uses this title, that, oh, well, even the Son of Man, a lowly, a lowly son of a, of a general man here, I have nothing, that seems like it's a humble position, and there could be something to that. That's possible. But I think there's more to it. The title Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the prophet Daniel, he gets this vision of heaven, and he sees this glorious display and even sees this vision of God in the throne room of heaven. And in the, the course of this vision, he says here, and then I saw, after he sees all this panoply of glory, he says, I saw one like a son of man come into the ancient of days. That's God. The ancient of days is God. And he says, and this son of man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And he says, in all peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. So this image is of, of this man. And he says, son of man, someone who looks like a man in the image of a man. Residing in heaven with God and given all the power and authority of God. Now, if you understand the Old Testament scriptures and our, our doctrine of theology here. Of God, I should say, you understand that a human being has no place in heaven. Not only can't we not fathom it in terms of our bodies can 't tolerate that kind of glory, we don 't have the, the godliness enough to even be there. That 's the whole chasm between God and man is sinfulness. And so for Daniel to see a man in heaven and then being glorified and given authority and power in heaven is astonishing. But yet it's this, there's something about this person that Daniel sees in heaven. So this son of man, this is a great mystery. And so when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, he's making a declaration that, oh, by the way, the, the person that Daniel saw glorified, given authority, given power, that's me. Now it's very subversive because some people would have been, well, what, what are we talking about, son of man? They probably would have made the connection. But I'll tell you, some people got it. That's why they picked up stones to kill him. Because that's, a, that's an audacious claim if it's not true. It's blasphemous if it's not true. So that's the title that Jesus takes for himself. It's a reference to the God-man. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Again, two natures in one. Jesus being truly God and truly man. He is more than simply a good teacher. He's more than simply a moral example. A good rabbi. No, no. Jesus is God in human flesh. Truly and fully God. In truly and fully man. And so Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He's making a a divine claim of authority and power. Yet here, in some strange twist of irony, Jesus is saying that the God of the universe, who possesses all power, all glory, all dominion, this Son of Man, who resides in the throne room of heaven, has nowhere to lay his head. No home on earth, no estate, No fortune. Even today, you could go to Capernaum. You can go to the city of Capernaum. It's really kind of just ruins now. You could go to Capernaum and you can actually see the ruins of Peter's home. They've built a church over top of it, but you can go and there's like a little basement dwelling, and we believe that's where Peter lived. And so that's where Jesus would have healed his mother in law. That would have been the the hub of ministry in a lot of areas. So you can go and you can see Peter's home. But there's no archaeological tour to Jesus' house, it doesn't exist. So we know he stayed with people like Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He had lots of friends, people who loved him and embraced him. He was welcomed into everybody's home to eat. He sat and ate with, with tax collectors and with leaders. And he ate with anybody who would welcome him into their home. He was even able to pay his taxes. So Jesus, he worked hard. He, he ate food. He slept places. I mean, he, he traveled around. He had all of his needs met in terms of his human needs. But the point of his comment is that he did not possess anything of earthly value, not even a house, not even a dwelling place. But the question is, why did he respond to the scribe this way? Why did he give him that kind of answer? Because I think he knew what's in his heart. Many people, I believe, come to Christ because they want to know or they want to experience what God can do for them. They get to the end of themselves out in the world and they say, I'm not getting very far. But I'll tell you, this whole Jesus thing, this seems like this is a good gig. And I I watch the TV and I see all those rich people on TV, televangelists, and they seem like they're doing really well. They're happy. Big smile on their face. If I come to Christ, maybe I I can have some of that. And they want to get what God is giving. That's the biggest problem with the prosperity gospel. I touched on it just a little bit last week, but really this is people coming to Christ thinking it's going to produce for them wealth and blessing. And I'll tell you, there are pastors that get into ministry for the benefits. Now, tiny little churches don't usually, that's not a place where pastors make millions of dollars. But I'll tell you, you work your way up the ranks enough and you start to receive lots and lots of things. There, I'll tell you, there's danger. There's danger in a ministry when you start publishing books and speaking at conferences and being well-known. There's danger there. Of getting into this for the wrong reasons, pastors need to be very careful about examining motives. I'm reminded of the story of Simon Magus in Acts chapter eight, when he saw the apostles laying hands on people, performing signs and wonders, and he asked the apostles. He goes to them. He says, "I want to have that power. That that looks pretty. I mean, you're seeing. He's watching people being healed, and demons are being cast out. He, I want to do that. He even offered the money. He gave them money." to teach him how to do what they're doing. Why? Well, because he's a magician. That was his profession. He he performed magic shows. And he thought to himself that that kind of a a skill could really draw a crowd and even make him more famous. He could become the most famous magician in all of Israel. What did Peter say to him? Acts chapter 8, verse 20, he says, May your silver perish with you, for you are not you have no part or portion in this matter he says for your heart is not right before god you're seeking this for your own glory not for god's glory there's always a temptation to come to christ with selfish motives that's why paul warns about this in first timothy chapter 6 he notes that those who are depraved of mind and deprived of truth he he says that these people believe that the godliness is a means of gain. If I become a good Christian, the, and, I, and I follow the rules and do what I'm supposed to do, God's going to bless me materially. He's going to give me a nice house. and a, and a good. If I, if I follow God and honor God, I'm going to get pay raises at work. Because why not? I'm, I'm faithful. I'll get a nice house. Like I'll get to drive a nice car. I'm good with God, and so we'll go on lots of vacations. We'll buy lots of things. Godliness as a means of gain. But then Paul adds this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 6. He says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And he says, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. He says, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be well content. But then he warns this, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But then he says, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with having possessions. There's nothing wrong with owning a home. The problem becomes when all those things begin to own you, and when you begin to chase after those things under the guise of godliness, but you go after God thinking that's what he's going to give you. And you begin to chase that. Your heart gets drawn away from God and toward the stuff. And Paul says, that's dangerous. You will fall headlong into ruin. That's the the danger for us. Now, going back to Matthew, the text doesn't tell us that that was what the scribe was thinking. We don't know if that's what what was on his mind. But based on Jesus' answer, it does not seem hard for us to speculate on on those motives. After all, if you're able to learn Jesus' wisdom... And his application of the Torah. As well as learn how to perform all the miracles of Elijah that you read about. Because if you look at the parallels of Elijah and Elisha. Look at the parallels of Moses. I mean, you see Jesus as a greater Solomon. A greater Elijah. A greater Moses. I mean, he is doing all the things that they were doing on steroids. And so, if I can learn as a scribe. How to do the works of Elijah. And have the wisdom of Moses and and Solomon. If I can do all that. I'll become the most preeminent scribe in Israel, and I'm going to be able to distinguish myself among my peers. I'll have prominence. I'll have influence. I'll have a life of ease. You know, and I'll be serving God too. But Jesus destroys that dream. He destroys it completely. He says to this man, not even the Son of Man, the Messiah, has a place to lay his head. You want to come to me for things? Guess what? I have nothing. He's talking about on earth here. I, you want to follow me to live in luxury? You're not going to get what you think. No earthly wealth. In fact, he will be crucified naked on a cross with Roman soldiers gambling for his clothes. All that Jesus possessed at the end of his life was gambled by soldiers. Think about that. He had to borrow someone else's tomb to get buried in. He had nothing. I believe this can be instructive for us as well. The question, and I would ask this of yourself, just pose it to yourself, to your own heart. Are you following Christ for what He can do for you? Or are you following Him in order to gain Him? Do you want Jesus because of Jesus? Paul wrestled with this himself. He says in Philippians 3.8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He said, everything else I attain for, Paul was the rabbi this scribe wanted to be. Paul had it all. He had, he had the right lineage, the right education, the right teachers. He had the greatest teacher of Israel as his rabbi. He was zealous He was a Pharisee, he had position, he probably had wealth, he was a young guy building up his empire for himself, he was sent on missionary journeys to go and ruin all opposition to the Jewish group. Paul had everything going for him, and he said, but when I stack up knowing Christ versus everything I'm going to gain in this life, he said, this is garbage. The Greek word skubalon means dung, literally dung. He says, everything else in my life is garbage, as dung, as refuse in comparison to knowing Christ, my Lord. There's nothing greater, Paul says, than knowing Jesus, the God of the universe. I get to know him personally and follow him. He goes, I'd give anything for that. Follow Christ because you understand that only he can save you and deliver you from your sins. Follow Christ because he is the King of Kings. Instead of being beholden to some earthly leader, some earthly king, some earthly president, some earthly whoever, it doesn't matter what they're doing, behold to the King of Kings. Serve him. Follow Christ because only he is truly worthy of glory. A second man comes to Jesus in verse 21. But this time, it's not a scribe. It's not a a religious leader. This time, it's one of his own disciples. This is remarkable. Look at verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now, at first glance, it seems like a reasonable request, right? This is fair. It seems like he's saying, Lord, I want to follow you. My father has just died. And I just want to go home and bury him and I'll be back in a couple of days. And that seems really reasonable, doesn't it? Now, if that's what's going on, then verse 22 seems really strange. Look at verse 22. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. What? That seems to our minds very strange. Now, to be clear, and I want to be very clear about this because we do this as people We are never allowed to stand in judgment of the words of the Lord. Even if what he says here seems harsh, he has a reason for saying what he's saying, and he has the authority to say it. After all, we don't know what's going on in this man's mind and heart. Jesus does. And so Jesus reserves the divine, he has divine prerogatives to do and say whatever he wants to say. So even here, as I'm reasoning through this statement, we and I have no right to say that's not fair. That's mean, Jesus. You can't say that. However, Bible scholars have come to believe that there's actually something else going on here. There's something else happening, which actually further better explains Jesus' statement. Let me explain. In Israel, when someone would die, they were buried on the same day. So you passed away and you went right into the ground right on the day. But then they would follow that burial with mourning for 30 days. So your whole family, your friends, everybody would mourn your death for 30 days. However, the phrase, the phrase, bury my father, that was a common expression. Toward the end of a person's life, their children would take care of them, and we do much of the same even in our culture. However, oftentimes the son would help and manage the father's estate in order to prepare for his eventual death. And then what would happen is at that point, once the father has passed on, the estate would then be divided up amongst all the kids. And the greatest portion of that estate would go to the son that helped settle the estate. Now, this process could take years, even decades, because if you're the son, you want to get in there, don't you? You want to kind of get in there and start to work this. You want to learn the ropes and okay, what's going on, Dad? And uh, all right, so all these, wh- which of the which of the field is how much of it's going to be mine when when you die? Okay, that's that's all this. All right, he'd be figuring things out. He'd be learning the ropes and learning his father's estate. In fact, the disciple's father may not have even been dead at this point, or even sick for that matter. And so, if we understand that, that's the context. And I read several, not just an understanding of the biblical text, but even in ancient Near Eastern culture, and even I read one commentary that made note of the fact that this even still happens today. This phrase, bury my father, is still being used in parts of the world as referring to this long-term settling of the father's and the family's estate. And so if that's true, if that's the case, and that's the context going on, then what he's essentially saying in the moment here is I want to follow you, Jesus, but I want to wait a couple of years until my father goes. And I want to settle his estate. And then once I have enough money in my, hand, in my possession, then guess what? I'm going to follow you. We're going to do all kinds of ministry. Something like that. I'm going to wait till things are really good, and then you just wait, Lord. You just wait. I'm going to have all this estate, and we're going to set the world on fire, you and me. That is what elicits Jesus' response here. He tells him, verse 22, No, no, no. Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. What does he mean by let the dead bury their own dead? Thought about this this week. Naturally, this cannot mean that dead people are able to settle estates or conduct funerals, right? That's just logic. He's not talking about literal dead. He is speaking figuratively, though. Let the spiritually dead manage the things of the world. Let the spiritually dead manage the things of the spiritually dead. Settling estates, dealing with lawyers, all that stuff. Anyone can do that. That's what he's saying. Anybody could do that. You could do that. Your brother could do that. Anybody, anybody could handle any of those material things. Here's the thing. Jesus only uses Christians to do Christian ministry. Again, this man is a disciple of Christ. And Christ is building this ministry... Through the labors of his disciples. Now it's going to start with Jesus. But once Jesus goes, he's handing everything off to the apostles and to the disciples. In fact, a couple chapters ahead in chapter 10, he's going to send out 70 of them to go begin to do ministry. So Jesus is in the, the place right now where he's training these disciples to be sent out to go and proclaim the gospel to all peoples. That's where he's at. And so Jesus is essentially saying, I'm advancing the kingdom of God. I'm training up disciples in preparation for my crucifixion. And you want to go home and wait around till your father dies so you can settle his estate and claim your inheritance? Let the dead bury their own dead. You, you follow me. You do what I'm doing. This disciple has no idea. It's not even going to be decades. It's a matter, at this point in the text, maybe 24 months until Jesus goes. And it's going to be all on them. The urgency of this statement, I mean, you just can't fathom how how pressing this is. The entire future of Christianity vested in Christ is in this moment. And this disciple wants to go off and just get a bunch more money And then kind of figure it all out. Jesus says, you follow me. You follow me. Now what does following Christ mean? Lots of things, but certainly no less than this. Number one, you have to be converted to Christ. You have to belong to Christ. In other words, you have to see him as Lord and Savior, turning from your sins, being born again in your heart, confessing Christ with your mouth, believing and trusting in him. You have to belong to Christ. That's first. But then it also involves learning of Christ. A disciple literally is a learner, a student. And so being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, it's not just profession. It's not just profession. You can't just say, oh yeah, I follow Jesus. Well, where do you follow him to? Where where are you going? Well, I don't know, I just, I believe in him. That doesn't mean anything. No, you have to be learning of God. Reading and studying the Scriptures. What does God say? What does He not say? What is His desire for you as a believer? What has He proclaimed about Himself? You have to to know who you believe in. You have to know the character and the mind of God. What His commands are. What the Gospel is. What does He want for me? How am I to grow in godliness? If I'm going to be like Christ, what does being like Christ mean? Study and learn and grow. Immerse yourself in the scriptures beef up on doctrine doctrine is not just for the the eggheads the theologians in the church no no doctrine is for all of us what do you think I teach you every single week from the pulpit doctrine now I take big words and I break them down and try to I want people to understand I want to understand what they are myself it's at a certain point you have to take the cookies and put them on the bottom shelf that's important that's how I learn doctrine making it plain. But make no mistake, we learn doctrine. We learn teaching. We take the whole Bible and condense it. What does the whole Bible say about this one thing? That's doctrine. That's important. So to be a follower of Christ, you need need to be learning Christ and learning what he says. And then the third thing, again, there's more, but this is no less than this. The third thing is obedience to him. It's great to know him and believe in him, It's great that you're learning about Him and reading your Bible and studying and growing. But that has to translate into how you live your life. A disciple of Christ is going to follow Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, the ways that I'm like Paul and I'm sinful, don't follow that. But in all the ways that I'm like Jesus, you need to follow that. It means you're conforming your mind to, your actions, your desires, you're, you're, just, you're bringing all things into subjection to the authority of Christ. Where you're actually living as though He is your Lord. There's an obedience component. So when Jesus says, you follow me, He says, you know, you come with me. Trust me, learn from me, do like I do. That's a follower. And that's what He tells this man. In fact, He says even more to this disciple turn over to Luke chapter nine Or uh, Luke chapter nine Luke chapter nine this is what's known as a, a parallel passage Matthew Mark and Luke are all considered to be synoptic gospels in other words they tell much of the same uh, stories and the same viewpoint but just kind of slightly different details based on who was telling that John includes a lot of different information. John is kind of filling in the gaps later on, many years later, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very, very similar in their writing. And so Luke records the exact same episode here, but just adds a little bit more in terms of detail. He records more than what Matthew records of Jesus' words here. But Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 59, same situation. He said to another, meaning another disciple, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. So, same information. Verse 60. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now we see he actually has marching orders. He doesn't just say, Don't worry about your family's business practices. He says, follow me, but here, he says, I'm not just, I don't want you to just follow me. I'm going to send you. You're going to go. And you're going to proclaim the kingdom of God everywhere you go. There's mission attached to this now. This isn't just the holy huddle. You're going to go and you're going to proclaim the gospel. We are people, by nature, believers are those who are sent on mission. We go everywhere and everywhere we go. You don't have to go to the other side of the world. You can. Certainly, though there are many people who are called to the other side of the world, but I'll tell you, everywhere that you go school, your job, your family it doesn't matter where you go. You're an ambassador of Christ. You belong to Him. You're sent and go. You're going to go pray, proclaim the gospel to people. See, the scribe was willing to follow Jesus on the spot because of what he thought that Jesus. Would give him. But here the disciple wants to postpone following Christ so that he can receive all the gain of earth and then follow Jesus. We see this today, don't we? I've heard this before. Well, maybe I'll accept Christ later on before I die. I remember being in conversation with someone one time and I laid out the gospel. We spent, I don't know, two hours just talking. It would have taken 15 minutes, but it's me. So it took two hours. We, we spent time talking. I shared the gospel. I, I, I pressed him in. I said, this is really important. And this is what he said to me. I'll never forget it. He said, I don't know. He said, I, I feel like something bad would have to happen and kind of shake me up before I would really consider that. And I looked at it. I just, are you serious? And I said, I, I hope not for your sake. If you recognize Christ now, why wouldn't you come to him now? Before your life gets destroyed and then you come to him. He didn't want to give up what he had. Whatever he thought that was. Or this one. I'll engage in discipleship when things settle down at home. It keeps on happening, right? There's always something to do at home. There's always things to do. I'll come to church when fill in the blank is over. Whatever that is. I remember I got a text message one time. Sorry, we won't be at church on Sunday. We had a really busy night on Friday. I had to do the math. I'm thinking. So whatever you did Friday took 36 hours for you to recover to come to church and worship the living God. I didn't respond to that text message. But I mean we we do this kind of thing, don't we? We do it. I'll engage in evangelism when I'm retired. You know, my job it just looks bad if I do that kind of stuff, and you know, once I'm out of that job, you know, then, then I can go talk to people about Christ. I'll study the Bible again when my classes are over. I'm thinking a lot about other things, I just don't have time to read the Bible. We do this all the time. And and I would venture to guess that there's not one of us, myself included, that has not come to Christ with a flimsy, foolish answer, or an excuse, I should say, for why we're not following him and devoting ourselves to him. Excuses to, to postpone mission and evangelism, growth, discipleship, loving the church, loving your neighbor. I mean, all these different components of who we are as Christians. It's almost as if we want to just carve out a small niche and stick Jesus in there and then have the rest of our life to do whatever we want. Without recognizing that Christ is Lord over our entire life. And all things are subjected to Christ. Now I understand that we all have responsibilities of life. I'm not saying stop living your life and then just do something else. I mean, we have responsibilities. But here's the real issue. Here's the real issue. What are your priorities? It's an issue of priority. You have one life. You have one life. What are you going to do with it? Because it's moving quick, isn't it? And it seems like it's moving quicker the older you get. It's, it, it goes fast. Your kids grow up fast. You get old fast. Life comes quickly. And in light of eternity... What are you going to spend your remaining years or decades doing? Are you going to spend your life on yourself? I've only got a couple good good years ahead of me. I'm I'm just going to take them for me. Or are you going to spend your life for Christ? Again, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Do you want to know what what my goal is? My goal is to get to heaven exhausted from ministry. Now, there are ways I could do that sinfully. And I'm going to try to not do that sinfully. But the idea, the reformers understood this. Soli Deo Gloria. That was the the battle cry of the Reformation. Soli Deo Gloria. For the glory of God alone. Meaning all of life is lived for God's glory. That means that when you go to school and learn, you learn to the glory of God. When you go get married, you're going to go get married and be married to the glory of God. Meaning you baptize your entire marriage in subjection to God's glory. You have children, you raise your children to the glory of God. You you work a job. You do that job to the glory of God. And you you might have a job you think is not all that flashy. It doesn't matter. You do that job to the glory of God. God is keenly aware of what we're doing. He knows every thought in your head, every intention in your heart, and every single thing you do, He sees. And you have an opportunity. And you say, Yeah, but I can't I can't go travel the world and do things. You have plenty to do right in front of you here. There are a multitude of ways that you and I can glorify God right here. Tons of ways. But again, don't listen to me, listen to the Lord. What are the opportunities he's placing in front of you right now? What are the ways you can follow him right now? For some of you, it might be you have an opportunity to be in a, a small group ministry. Those are hard to get going, but I'll tell you, they're worth it if you can get it going. What about discipleship opportunities with other people? Missions. I mean, I, I pray that I mean, we've, we've struggled to get this moving. But I'm, I'm really praying that we're going to be making steps toward this kind of a thing. We have a, a missionary coming in June to talk about what's going on in Africa right now. But there's tons of opportunities. There are church plants happening, a church plant happening in the Dover area next year. I mean, the Lord is moving. He's bringing things to fruition. What about a, a ministry of hospitality? You think to yourself, well, I don't know if I can do much. You can bring people over to your house for lunch, can't you? Can you make a meal? Well, you might, you might say, I'm not a very good cook. Well, neither am I. You can, you can buy lunch. <laughs> you can serve people. What about prayer ministry? Can you pray? Certainly. You can sign up and you can get updates. You can talk to people, pray with people. Call them on the phone. How are you doing? You're having a hard time. Can I pray with you right now? We need more deacons, we need elders. I mean, there's so many needs in the body of Christ that we can fulfill and we can do so to God's glory. We can do so as followers of Christ, because these are the things that he did. All of us are called to some kind of gospel ministry, some kind. And God gives accordingly. But the question for us is, will you follow Christ? Or is this just something you sprinkle in on Sunday morning? Do you follow Christ? While we're in Luke 9, I want to look at one more encounter that Luke records. Matthew does not record this, but it's right in the same passage. You can see it after he deals with this disciple who wanted to go and bury his father, he says. Verses 61 and 62. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to go and say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus knows this man's heart. He understands that he, if this man returned home, and home might have been, you know, a week's journey away, I don't know. But he knew that if this man went home, there's a good possibility he wouldn't come back. Because isn't that the way that you know we, we get on fire, we, we go to we go to church or we go to some event or you know, we go to someone's house and we get all fired up. And all right, when I go home, I'm going to I'm going to start. Well, you know, I'll, maybe Monday morning. I'll start Monday. Well, you know, this is a busy week. I'll start next week. And we do this to ourselves. We sabotage ourselves. But this man, maybe he went home and it might have just been too comfortable. You know, get around your old friends and you start to fall back into your old patterns, your old life. Maybe his family would have convinced him that following Jesus was a fool's errand. Don't do that. The temptation would have been too great. And so Jesus warns him. He says, No one, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of heaven. In other words, when you're working hard for the Lord, you simply cannot stop and look backwards. He doesn't want uncommitted disciples, he doesn't want half hearted obedience. That was the big dust up between Paul and Barnabas. Because Mark went with them on their journey. Remember this? Mark goes with them and he abandons them halfway through. And Barnabas, poor guy, I mean, he's a gracious guy, he says, I, let's try again with Mark. And Paul says, no, I don't want to work with Mark. He's not trustworthy. He, he abandoned the mission. I mean, I love the guy. I'll see him in heaven, but I don't want him on mission with me. They, they had a huge falling out over this issue. Jesus does not want you to be lukewarm or double-minded. He says in Matthew sixteen twenty-four, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake will find it. In the kingdom of God, up is down, down is up. We think that if we could just get it all here and now in this life, we can, we can make a name for ourselves here. If people can see that we're successful and put together and we have it all going for us, they're going to ask us, well, gee whiz, why are you doing so well? And you can say, well, because of Jesus. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Jesus says you must lose this life. Lose this life. What does that mean? People come to you and say, I don't get it. What keeps you going? What is it about you? I've seen you go through adversity and trial and sickness and calamity and you still praise God? What's wrong with you? And you get to testify to the grace of God in your own life. You lose your life. You say, Lord, my life belongs to you. If I do well, if I do poorly... If I'm healthy, if I'm sick, no matter what happens in my life, my life belongs to you. I do not care the cost. You lose your life, Jesus says, you'll find it. You'll find it in him. The disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. We've, We've lost everything. We lost our homes, our businesses, our families turned away from us. And Jesus says, you're going to experience a hundredfold of all of that in the kingdom and persecution in this life now to be clear again we're saved by God's grace through faith you don't lose your life and deny yourself in order to get to heaven no we're justified by faith alone apart from works of the law you confess your sins to Christ you turn to to Christ and trust in him it is not an effort it's not a slugging your way through You come to God on your face, you come to God, you say, I I trust in you, I confess my life of sin, save me, and he saves you. It is a work of grace by which you receive eternal life. It's not of works. It's not of works. However, once you already belong to him, once you have been saved, once you have been regenerated, then your life is not your own. Because the Bible says you've been bought with a price, haven't you? You didn't pay for your own salvation and and your own commodity. I didn't go and earn a bunch of treasure, earthly treasure in this life, or amass a pile of good deeds and that was good enough for God. No. He ransomed his own son to pay for me. He bought me. And if you're in Christ, he bought you. With his own blood. And so you belong to Christ now. And then what does Paul say? Therefore, therefore... Glorify God in your body, in your life, in what you do. Bring glory to Him because you're not your own. Follow Christ. Don't dabble in the world. Don't waffle in your godly obedience. Don't come to Christ with ulterior motives. Jesus, I'll make you a deal. Don't ever say that. Instead, Jesus says, You follow me. You follow me with your whole heart in all godliness and sincerity and to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are so gracious to us. Because God, when I when I look at a text like this and I see the cost of following Christ. There's something in me, in my humanist, that says I can't do it. It's too much. It's too high. But we know the Bible teaches us that when you save us, when you redeem us, you begin to change our mind. You begin to change our desires. You give us a new heart, a new spirit. And you help us not to worry about the whole future. You help us to walk today. You give us sufficient grace for today. That you love us. And you help us, Lord. You teach us and instruct us to deny ungodliness. To say no to the world. And to live for you today. Not even just hour by hour, but decision by decision, moment by moment. That we are people who belong to you. And so, God, we entreat you to sustain us by your grace. Because, Lord, on our own and in our own strength, we can't do it. I I don't have enough inherent godliness to follow you on my own i need you we need you as believers as followers but lord in doing so as we purpose in our hearts to follow you i pray that you would help us and protect us from things outside of ourselves that would seek to derail us from the task distractions and things that would lead us astray Things from our old life that would creep up and try to hijack us, Lord. Temptations to wander away and chase something else. Even success or prominence or whatever status we accomplish can become a temptation, Lord. I pray that you would protect us from those temptations. That we would keep our focus squarely on you. That we follow you. You are Lord and everything we do gets subjected to your Lordship. And so, Lord, I pray that today this message, this text would not be something that would burden us and create guilt and shame and that would not destroy us and bring us down to the ground. But rather, I pray that this text and this message would actually create some steel in our spine to, to prop us up, not by our own merits, but be propped up by grace to say you have paid for me. You bought me, so Lord, help me to run. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would experience the love and the grace and the mercy and the kindness that you give us and that our sufficiency in Christ, by your sufficiency, that we could run through a wall, Lord. Again, not to prop ourselves up, but to be subject to you. The Bible says that we are not adequate of ourselves as to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Our adequacy, however, is in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be followers, true followers of Jesus Christ. I pray this in your name. Amen.